Hello everyone and welcome to Classic Gaming Today, where we take a look at the gaming experiences of the past through the eyes of the present. I am your host, Tony, and today we're going to look at Heart of the Alien, the cinematic platform adventure puzzle game developed by Interplay Entertainment and published by Virgin Interactive back in 1994 exclusively for the Sega CD. We're going to talk about that game in just a minute, but first, just a little bit of housekeeping. This is episode number 21. That means we are officially legal, and I am having a great time. I do want to continue to build a community, and if you have any interest in reaching out, there's a couple of ways you can get in contact with me. I do have an email address, which is classicgamingtoday at gmail.com. I also have a Twitter account with the handle at classicgamingt. So if you want to talk about the podcast or suggestions for future episodes or feedback on prior episodes or pretty much anything you want to talk about at all, feel free to reach out. I am definitely interested in having the discussion. For anybody who may be new, welcome. I do just want to take a brief moment and talk about the general structure of the episode because for the most part, we follow the same exact framework for every single one of our episodes. We will always start by talking about the history of the game in question, the historical context. Where does it sit within the overall historical context of video and computer gaming? After we talk history, we will go into a pseudo-review kind of section, and I say pseudo-review because it's not like we are going to assign a point value or an A to F kind of thing, but we do talk about each game from a few different perspectives. We will talk about the graphics. How does the game look? We'll look at the sound and music, or more accurately, listen to the sound and music. How does the game sound? We'll discuss the narrative and story, if the game has one, playability and controls, and the overall feel. How does it feel to play the game today versus when it was originally released? And we do all of that to reach a verdict as far as how well the game holds up today. And to do that, we assign each game to one of several categories. At the very top of our list is the Pantheon of Classic Gaming. If a game gains entry into the Pantheon, you know it is that darn good. You should play it today. Highly recommend it. It is just as good today as it ever has been, and I highly recommend you give it a go. Just beyond the Pantheon are our Golden Oldies. These are games that are still really good games, and I still recommend you play them, especially if you have nostalgia for the game or you enjoy the genre in which the game belongs. It is pretty much a sure thing you're going to have a good time. They don't quite reach Pantheon level, but they are still amazing experiences that you yourself should experience today. Beyond the Golden Oldies are our mediocre mentions. These are the games that start getting into the territory where I can't really recommend to the general population that you play them. They may have aged semi-poorly. They may have had a couple of issues to begin with. I can't really recommend them. If you have particular fondness for the genre and you really want to experience every experience within that genre, go for it. But for the general population, I can't really recommend these titles. And then beyond those, we get to the footnotes. These are the games that are best left in the annals of history. I have played them, so you don't have to. These games I cannot in good conscience recommend to anyone to play. They have either aged incredibly poorly, or they may not have been all that great to begin with. With that out of the way, we're going to start talking about the game of the day, that being Heart of the Alien.
Heart of the Alien was a cinematic platform adventure puzzle game developed by Interplay Entertainment and published by Virgin Interactive in 1994 for the Sega CD. Now, Heart of the Alien, and this is a little bit of a more, I'll say, esoteric selection because I don't know that many people talk about Heart of the Alien all that much. It is the sequel to Out of This World, or Another World, which we talked about uh, many episodes ago back early on in the podcast. So there really would be no Heart of the Alien without Out of This World, so it makes sense to go back and discuss that title a little bit before we move on. I do want to note, this is a high-level summary of Out of This World. Like I said, we have an episode that's fully dedicated to the development of that title and how I felt about that title and just overall what the overall experience was. So if you're interested in learning more about Out of This World, definitely check that episode out. We do have a little bit of a refresher here just to paint the context around how the sequel was created because... Heck, if you don't know how the original was created and this is the first episode you're listening to or you missed the Out of This World episode, uh, you may be missing some of that context. So I do just want to provide that up front. So let's talk about Out of This World. It was the result of a single man's efforts to create a truly cinematic game experience. And that man was Eric Chahi, who was a French game designer. He had gotten his start working with a game development studio called Lerissier. Uh, and by the way, these are a lot of French names. I may mispronounce them. I apologize up front. So Lerissier was a company focused on developing uh, titles for a variety of computer platforms, most of which were focused on the European microcomputer market of the 1980s. Chahi eventually, after working with that company for several years, wanted a change of pace. So he left the company and he joined a new company called Delphine Software. At the time, he was working alongside another French game designer by the name of Paul Quisset on Future Wars, which was a point-and-click adventure title and part of Delphine Software's Software Cinematique label. Delphine, as a company, was focused on creating cinematic gaming experiences. And this is something that would pervade all of the titles that Delphine would work on, pretty much. They wanted to bring the feeling of the cinema to an interactive gaming experience. That title that uh, Quisset and Chahi were working on, Future Wars, was a success, and with the royalties that resulted from the work on that game, Chahi was given various options of what to focus on next. So he had a couple options. He could either continue working with Paul Quisset on his next game, Operation Stealth, or he could create his own original title. Given those two choices, Chahi decided to create his own game, and that is what would eventually lead to the development of Out of This World. So let's talk a little bit about the development and innovations that Chahi would spearhead with Out of This World. First of all, and one of the most in-your-face aspects of what he did were certainly the graphics and just the overall graphical style. Chahi decided early on that he didn't want to create simple raster graphics, meaning every single pixel on the screen kind of mapped out and drawn out. What he wanted to do was do something innovative, and that was to create a true polygon engine. So the way that engine worked is rather than having every single screen in the game or every single character in the game be sprite-based with individual pixels fully defined, he would create an engine that would utilize multi-sided shapes or polygons 
to draw all of the main characters and foreground objects in the game. The background would still be traditional graphic images kind of stuff just because it was easier than making the entire game world in polygons. But the polygons that he used were used primarily on foreground objects and characters. And the way it worked was rather than define every single pixel, if you use a polygon-based engine, what you can do is basically define the individual points of a shape, tell the computer how to join those points, and then tell the computer what to fill those points in with or what to fill those shapes in with, and then bam, you have a polygon, and then if you combine all those polygons together, you could potentially create a scene. Now, this was before texture mapping was really prevalent and the technology and the processing power for... uh, texture mapping really wasn't in place just yet. So all of these polygons were flat shaded. It gave it a very interesting artistic feel when you would look at the game, but it wasn't actually, it was actually a really good looking game regardless of that fact and something that we really hadn't seen before out of this world was created. So that was one of the things that Chahi decided up front was to change the way he was going to do graphics and focus more so on a polygon engine, albeit for a two-dimensional game. It's not like this was a three-dimensional kind of title. Now, as he went forward to create those graphics, he needed to figure out how he wanted to animate the title. And one of his overall goals was to create a game that was truly cinematic feeling. Delphine Software itself was always focused on the cinematic feel of their games or of their adventures. And Chahi was no different. He wanted to make sure that when you were playing the game, it felt very cinematic, and he wanted to make sure that the animations that would play as you would play the game were incredibly smooth. And to do that, he turned to a technique called rotoscoping. So rotoscoping is a technique where rather than draw animations by hand, frame by frame, or use a computer to interpolate the data between different uh, keyframes of an animation, the way he would do it is he would actually record actions being taken by real people. So he would have real video recordings. And then what you would do is you would take those individual frames of the recording, draw over them, and then effectively you're creating animation. So it's almost like you're playing a video back, but the video has been overlaid by this hand-drawn graphics or hand-drawn images. So in that way, the animation would become very smooth because the animation itself was based on real video. This was a technique that was used a couple times in prior games, most prominently by Jordan Mechner in some of his earlier titles, like uh, Karataka, as well as Prince of Persia, and had also been used extensively in older Disney animation and Disney films, because one of the things that they would do, especially with scenes like uh, dance scenes or anything where there was incredibly lifelike movement, they would basically use rotoscoping in order to create that animation. And even though it was hand-drawn in that the images were overlaid over the video sequences, it was still based on that rotoscoping technology or technique. Continuing on, one of the other things that Chahi wanted to do in his effort to create a more cinematic experience was to simplify the interface. Around this time and certainly beforehand, a lot of games were focused on high scores and number of lives, and they'd have some sort of user interface that would depict these more game-like elements to the player. Because Chahi was going for a purely cinematic perspective, he decided that there would be no heads-up display, there'd be no score, there'd be no lives, no continues floating around, no, no damage numbers or anything like that. 
it would be basically like you were watching a film, which meant that the way he would frame everything, the way that he would create the interface and all of the elements in the game would have their basis in cinema versus traditional video game design. Now, as he was designing the game, he designed it and worked on it almost entirely as a solo effort, which for himself created a sense to a degree of isolation and his feelings were embedded and included within the game. So within the game, you would feel this feeling of isolation. You're navigating a desolate alien world. You do eventually find a companion alien, but there's still no verbal communication. There's no natural language discussion between them. There's no real communication that happens in the game at all. It's all visual and it's all based on the actions that you take or the actions you observe from the other characters. So even though you eventually come upon a companion uh, alien friend who will stick with you every now and then, it's not the full game. It's not like it's a buddy game kind of thing. It's kind of uh, individual sequences or individual scenes in the game. You have this companion working with you or you're helping him out or you know, vice versa. But overall, the game did feel like a very solo isolated kind of experience and the narrative was very high level meaning it's not like there was a lot of exposition or text on the screen that talked about the overall story there were a couple of cutscenes, but otherwise you really had to piece the narrative together for yourself it was generally speaking a sci-fi kind of story where you are a physicist working late in the lab one night and your particle collider malfunctions you get uh, sent off to a alien world and then you have to figure out how to survive and how to survive and, and bypass all of the obstacles and dangers of that world so there is certainly a narrative there it was not something that was super detailed and certainly wasn't something that was presented directly to you you kind of had to piece together those elements yourself as far as the style of the game it was absolutely a platform-driven game, but puzzles played a major role. And these aren't the traditional kind of adventure game puzzles where you might have to get inventory objects and combine them in special ways, or you might have to figure out codes to different things. The puzzles here were what interactions did you have to take in the environment in order to be able to progress to the next scene? So this might be something like filling a cavern with water so that... Uh, an area would be traversable without getting slammed by a waterfall or something like that. And figuring out how to progress in the game, oftentimes the puzzles were more challenging than the platforming and the action elements for that matter. So it was really more about a, a thinking person's action adventure kind of game. There certainly were platforming elements and there were some action scenes where you'd have a blaster and you'd be able to shoot and shield and all that good stuff. But for the most part, the game was focused more so on the puzzles and the almost philosophical nature of the game and the feeling of desolation and isolation and made you really think. And ultimately, that is what sometimes took longer to get through the game because you had to figure out what specific actions to take in order to progress. It was definitely a difficult game, but once you know what you're doing and once you understand what those puzzles were and how to solve those puzzles... It could be completed pretty quickly. You could pretty much complete the game in less than an hour. And certainly the more you play and the more times you go through the experience, the more you would appreciate the minimalist artistic design. But at the same time, the quicker the game would become. For me, it became almost like comfort food, where if I had a little bit of extra time 
I might pop up out of this world into my Super Nintendo, play it for a bit because it was just one of those games that was almost like escapism and it looked like or looked unlike anything that we had seen before. So it just felt like you were playing something truly unique. Out of This World released on the Amiga computer system uh, back in 1991 with other ports that would follow, such as to the Sega Genesis, the Super Nintendo, and the Apple IIGS. In the United States, the game was published by Interplay Entertainment, with all of the aforementioned ports all completed by Interplay as well. Not everything was smooth sailing with these ports. Chahi wanted to control nearly all aspects of his creation. This was his baby. This was something that he had worked on almost exclusively as a solo effort. So he wanted to control pretty much every aspect of his vision. He wanted to make sure the box art was exactly what he wanted. He wanted to make sure that the background music was what he wanted. The overall design aesthetic, he wanted to execute his vision 100% on par or aligned with what he had in his head. Interplay, as the publisher for the title, would make various requests for changes to the game. They wanted to change the music used in the game. They wanted to change the opening cinematic. They wanted to make other miscellaneous modifications that they thought would make the game sell better. But Chahi was adamant in making sure that the final product would align with his original vision. Eventually, along with the help of Delphine's legal team, Interplay relented and left the experience the way that Chahi had originally designed it, which did end up being a wise decision because Out of This World would receive universal critical acclaim, be included on numerous best games of all time lists, inspire future games such as Delphine's own Fade to Black and Flashback, and also sell over 1 million copies in the years that followed. So, out of this world was undeniably a success. When the time came to port the title to the Sega CD, Interplay came back to Chahi with a request. At the time, CD technology was beginning to become more prevalent. Prior ports of Out of This World had been to cartridge or floppy disk-based systems with limited storage space, so refinements mainly focused on graphical and musical tweaks between the different ports that were happening. With CDs, however, the amount of storage available for content was dramatically increased, and Interplay saw this as an opportunity. Rather than simply port out of this world to Sega CD, which would effectively just be the same as the Sega Genesis version of the title, given the fact they were both on the same or similar hardware ecosystem, the team wanted to add additional enhancements. Some of those enhancements, like the addition of CD-quality audio versus synthesis-based music tracks, were relatively simple to do, and also for Chahi to agree to. But Interplay had a bigger ask in mind. In order to truly take advantage of the capabilities of a CD-ROM-based system, Interplay wanted to not just port the original game to the Sega CD, they wanted to create an all-new sequel to the title. So discussions began between Interplay and Eric Chahi, as the creator of the original experience wanted to make sure that he was on board. And after several discussions and some prolonged negotiation, Chahi eventually agreed to work on the sequel. So he began constructing a storyline for the title, which would effectively revisit the narrative of the original Out of This World, but from the perspective of the alien companion from the first game. So let's talk about that a little bit. What this meant is that rather than create a brand new scenario, brand new scenes, brand new characters, 
it would just be a retelling of the original experience just from a different perspective. And in the first game, there were multiple instances where you as your player character would work together with your alien companion, helping him out or him helping you out. And basically it would all be told from the perspective of you since you're the one playing the game. Chahi's thought was, okay, keep those same scenes, but flip it. Flip it so that you're controlling the alien and now you have to kind of go the opposite or vice versa of what the sequence was or what the scenario was in the original title. So as an example, earlier on in the game, there is a jail scene where you have to help your alien companion get out of jail and and escape and get to freedom. It'd be interesting if you were the companion and how would you play that or how would that scene play out differently. At the end of the day, the result or the outcome of the scene would be the same as the original title, but the actual act of playing it, the experience of playing it would be different. Chahi believed that seeing those same situations, but from a different perspective, would be an interesting narrative and gameplay experience. And I want to also mention that Out of This World had ended on an ambiguous note. You don't really know how things end at the end of Out of This World. I mean, you do have an ending. There is definitely an ending there. But as far as what the overall fate of all the characters are, Chahi left it ambiguous. And he liked that ambiguity. That's one of the reasons why he was really focused for the sequel on trying to retell the original from a different perspective versus creating a continuation to the story. He enjoyed the fact that the original title was ambiguous. He didn't want to correct or address that ambiguity. He just wanted to tell more of the same story in the same universe, albeit from a different point of view. Now, for Heart of the Alien, unlike what would happen with Out of This World, Chahi's involvement would be limited to the initial design and narrative concept because shortly after the release of Out of This World, Chahi left Delphine Software to found a new development company called Amazing Studio. Under that new company, Chahi would begin working on a spiritual successor to the original Out of This World, which would eventually evolve into the side-scrolling cinematic platformer Heart of Darkness. So with that new title taking up most of Chahi's time, Interplay was left to develop Heart of the Alien without Chahi's direct involvement. What ended up happening was a nearly complete departure from Chahi's original narrative. Rather than revisit the original Out of This World from the Alien's perspective, they instead decided to continue the story following the end of the original game, with Chahi's narrative being reduced to a short series of flashbacks at the beginning of the new title. The Interplay team made great effort to ensure that the original game's style was preserved, with similar graphics and music to accompany the gameplay. Unlike Out of This World, though, the graphics would be converted into a sprite-based system as opposed to the flat-shaded polygons of the original. This would serve to simplify the creation of the graphics, but would also cause interesting anomalies during certain scenes where various objects and characters would distort. A prime example of this is any scene where you fall into a spike pit. If you watch the midsection of your alien character, you'll see it shift back and forth in an odd undulating ripple, which never happened with the polygon-based engine of the original title. Despite that shift to more sprite-based visuals, the game's graphics were very similar to the original. As for music, the team utilized the original game's composer, Jean-Francois Freitas, to create the soundtrack. Now, this next part is a little fuzzy, admittedly. It's 
unclear whether he was brought on to create CD audio music for Heart of the Alien, which was then reused for Out of This World, or vice versa. Regardless, the music mapped very closely with the original game, owing largely to Freitas' involvement since he was truly the original composer for Out of This World. Now, the gameplay would evolve beyond the original game. The sequel introduced an alien whip that could sometimes be used to traverse chasms and other obstacles in an Indiana Jones-esque whip-swinging system. The whip would also serve as your blaster in the sequel, albeit with a different cadence for shooting than the original blaster you'd use in Out of This World. Eventually, all elements of the title would be complete, and Heart of the Alien would launch in 1994, exclusively on the Sega CD and exclusively in North America. Included on the disc were both the original Out of This World, which was an identical port of the Sega Genesis version, and the game's newly developed sequel. And that sequel was met with a positive critical response, with some media outlets even claiming that the game had exceeded the quality of the original Out of This World. While some would criticize the game's increased difficulty, most agreed that this was a fulfilling extension of the original title's narrative and gameplay. Eric Chahi, however, was not impressed. Having seen how far the title diverged from the original game, as well as his original vision for the sequel, Chahi disowned the title entirely, claiming that it didn't represent a true sequel to the original adventure. Despite Chahi's assertions and general dislike of the title, that didn't stop the game from gaining a following, so much so that years after its release, a fan and amateur developer took it upon himself to create an unofficial port of the game to modern consoles, using the Sega CD assets as the basis for that port. This even allowed the game to make an appearance on the venerable Amiga platform, which, as we talked about, was the original platform for Out of This World. Heart of the Alien is not as well remembered as Out of This World. With its console and region exclusivity serving to limit its overall reach, coupled with the fact that the Sega CD install base was dramatically less than other consoles of the time, like the base Sega Genesis and the Super Nintendo systems. That's not to say it should be forgotten, however. Interplay took a chance on creating something unique, with Heart of the Alien representing possibly the most limited release of a sequel to a popular title that at least I'm aware of or can think of. If anybody's aware of a more limited release, certainly let me know. Whether you personally agree with the critics or with Eric Chahi, the fact remains that Heart of the Alien still represents an interesting release in video game history. As the unexpected sequel to an all-time classic, it certainly warrants discussion, and while it might not embody its original creator's vision, that doesn't diminish the historical significance of the title. We are now going to transition to start talking about how it feels to play Heart of the Alien today versus when it was released. And trust me, I do have some thoughts on this one, and we will talk about that. Uh, so Heart of the Alien was a cinematic platform adventure game with some puzzle elements, and it 
did inherit a lot of out of this world's DNA. So let's talk about that for anybody who may not have played this particular game or potentially even the original. So when I say cinematic platform puzzle adventure game, what I mean is a game that takes a lot of inspiration from the movies as far as how scenes are framed, how animations happen, how you interact with the environment, and then couples that or marries that with some traditional platform kind of elements. So this is all around jumping around and moving around and navigating environments and avoiding obstacles or uh, jumping over obstacles or whatever the case might be. And then also combine some light puzzle elements. In the original title, it was all about how do you figure out how to progress to the next scene and what are the specific actions that you need to take, potentially even in sequence, in order to get to that next scene. Part of the alien does something very similar and does align pretty closely with that original gameplay style. In this particular game, you are placed into the shoes of your alien companion from the first game, and his name is Buddy. So you play as Buddy in this game, and it picks up right after the end of the first game. Little bit of a spoiler alert. The very first game, the way it ends, and fast forward a minute if you don't if you don't want to hear how that original game ended. But the way it ended was you end up fighting or you end up getting attacked by this alien, this this evil alien, and your companion comes up and starts beating him up. You make your way across the screen, pull a lever that eventually shoots a laser and disintegrates that bad guy, and then you and your alien companion ride off on the back of a pterodactyl somewhere, and that's how the game ends. So that's why when we were talking earlier about it being ambiguous, there's really no indication of what happens next you ride off into the sunset sort of but you don't know if things end well if you ever make your way back to your home planet or you stay there in the alien world you don't know what happens so this new game heart of the alien picks up right after that so you end up landing in buddy's village and at the time as you land a series of flashbacks start up and here's basically the the structure of the game It turns out that Buddy's village was attacked previously by what appeared to be the same big bad alien as what you would face at the end of Out of This World. I have no proof for that, by the way, but that's what it felt like. That's what it felt like the the implication was. So your village is attacked. Your friends and family are either killed or kidnapped or taken, captured, and you have to, or you've decided that you have to save the day and you have to figure out how to save the people of your village and return them to their home. So that then kicks off the game proper. And within this game, levels are structured very similar to the original game. There are collections of screens that need to be completed in some way. That might mean you have to take a certain action. You may need to avoid obstacles or an enemy. You may need to pick up a device and then use it on another screen. So basically, you have to work through these series of screens, and the screens are all tied together into pseudo-levels kind of thing because it's not like you're going into the world and you get to level one or you get to level two. But the game has a password system that... That makes it so that as you progress from one set of screens or one, in quotes, level to another, you gain a new password, which then lets you start up from where from where you eventually reached. 
which is great because the game doesn't have a battery backup or any other way to save it. So if you do want to rejoin progress or you do want to continue your progress later on, it's pretty much the only way you're going to be able to do that is with that password. Now, I have some some comments about the password system, and we might as well talk about them here. Because of the way the game is constructed, and this is similar to the original title, there is an expectation that in order to progress, you need to do certain things or you need to take certain actions. But the game actually doesn't gate you from progressing forward. So what that means is let's say you're in a series of screens and you have to complete a certain action in order to progress. Let's say you miss what that action is. The game may still let you move on to the next level or next set of screens, and it will give you a brand new password, that new password associated with the new screens. But because you didn't actually do what you had to do, it becomes kind of confusing because the game world itself, the state of the game world, hasn't been updated to allow you to progress even further in that new level. And I'll use one prime example from later on in the game. There is one part later in the game where you have to figure out how to get over this big gap. And what it turns out is that in order to do that, you have to destroy a machine that would then drop, I guess it's a bridge kind of thing, down and then you'd be able to walk across that bridge or series of platforms to get later on in the level. Well, if you miss destroying that machine, you can still progress to that gap where there's no bridge there. And you may have a new password that they give you, but you're never going to be able to progress over the bridge because you missed something in the prior set of screens. So you have to go back to that prior set of screens. And if you go back and you didn't complete it the way you were supposed to, or you load the game based on that original password, then you have to redo that whole set of screens from an enemy's perspective or from an action's perspective. So even if you cleared out the whole area, the enemies will respawn, which is a little punishing because there was no way you would have necessarily known what to do other than continuing to play it and play it and play it. And granted, this is an older title and older school titles, generally speaking, were a little bit less forgiving than what titles are today. So it's not unheard of to have to kind of figure out what you need to do or to kind of figure out what the path forward is and do a little bit of trial and error gameplay in order to get there. But I would have much rather it been similar to the first game. In the first game, if you progress onto a screen and you have not yet figured out what you needed to do to get there, so you somehow got through it, but you've left something unfinished, the game will not give you the new password. The game will still give you the original password that you were on. And you might be scratching your head thinking, well, wait, I, I progressed like five screens beyond this. Why, why am I not getting a new password? It feels like I should be getting something new. It feels like I've reached a checkpoint, so to speak, that I'll be able to continue from. But Out of This World was intelligent enough and the design of the game was intelligent enough to be able to say, yeah, you moved on to that screen, but you didn't complete something. So I'm not going to give you the new password because the state of the game world is going to become out of sync. Heart of the Alien didn't, didn't really have that design built in. They they kind of tried to do it, but they didn't do it all that well. And what that caused to happen was sometimes you were left scratching your head wondering, well, wait, I got the new password. That means I must have reached my next checkpoint. I must have done what I needed to do. When in reality, sometimes you did not. So it's great that they had a password system, but 
they didn't really implement it the way I would have liked. And it was one of those things where it actually made the game more difficult than what it needed to be because they didn't have the appropriate gates or the appropriate restrictions in place to make sure that you were actually accomplishing what you needed to do. Beyond that, the game isn't really an open world, so it's not like you could claim, oh, where there's multiple paths you can go to to get to your destination or any of the other tropes that are commonly associated with open world gaming. This was still a pretty linear experience. There there are certain sections and certain levels where you can go in any number of different directions And you don't really know what you're doing. You're just kind of exploring and trying to figure out what to do. And those are okay. That's totally fine. I would just have had the password system be a little bit more intelligent so that you could easily tell when you still need to do something in a certain part of the game versus just allowing you to move on and making you think like you had gotten everything done when in reality you missed going off to the side of the screen. And one of the things that you do have to pay attention to here is even when a screen looks like it might be a dead end, so it looks like you'd walk into a wall if you walk to the side of the screen, in reality, that wasn't a wall. That was just an invisible barrier that you would be able to walk through and get to another area of the game. So the graphics here kind of didn't, or the design, I should say, didn't really lend itself to being able to very easily telegraph when you could move left or right in the game. We'll talk more about that when we get to the graphics section. Uh, But still, around the overview of the game, this was extremely more difficult than the original game. And the original game, Out of This World, was pretty darn difficult until you figured out what to do and how to progress through the various scenes. This was really difficult. We're going to talk more about that in a few minutes. As far as the general controls go, it controls very similar to the first game, but like we were talking about before, the developers decided to add a whip as your primary item, which served both as a whip as well as a blaster. So the blaster was integrated into the whip. It's not like you had two separate weapons going on. There was also a new capability that was added into this title beyond out of this world that allows you to pull yourself up onto ledges. Very similar to what you might have seen in Prince of Persia, where you could approach a ledge, press up, and then you can climb up to a level above you. It's used at the very beginning of the game, and then for some reason, it was used very sparingly after that. So it was kind of like they added something in, and they had an idea to use it up front, and then they didn't really use it to any great effect later on in any event that's that's kind of how i or that was my observation of that new mechanic before we move on to the more review-esque types of things and talk about graphic sound and all that good stuff i do want to look at the back of the box and see what that says because as you guys know i enjoy looking at the back of the box and seeing how the game companies developers and marketing teams actually tried to sell their title to people who may not have been familiar with it. You might be walking around a video game store or a computer game store, see a box that looks cool, and the only way you're going to know to buy it is if the back of the box or the box itself appeals to you because, especially back around this time, it's not like we had the internet in any pervasive capacity. We didn't have gameplay videos on a YouTube-like system. It was basically just what we could hear, either word of mouth, If there were magazine articles on a given game, we could certainly see that, but not everybody had magazines. Most of the time, it was an in-person experience. What does the box say? So, for Heart of the Alien, the back of the box says, Heart of the Alien, Out of This World, Parts 1 and 2. Enter the award-winning sci-fi universe of Out of This World. 
a cool blue world where their past and future coexist, where electric torture chambers are manned by primitive humanoids, and the merciful turn merciless just to survive. Imagine an alien prison, where every passage you enter is one you may never exit. Every creature lives to try and take your life. And the further you run, the closer you get to the sadist they call the Warden. And then there are some screenshots and a couple of call-out text in different colors. So it says, contains two complete games, the all-new sequel plus the original strategy adventure, winner of four major industry awards. Award-winning polygonal graphics add a distinct visual style. Solve puzzles and escape death traps with electric weapons, plasma blasts, and inhuman powers. Over 70 challenging rooms filled with mutant guards, vicious beasts, dripping acid, and falling stalactites. Critically acclaimed sound effects and mood-setting music, and movie-like cinematography draws you into the action. So that was how the back of the box tried to sell the game, and, you know... It actually sells it pretty well. It's a pretty good representation of what you get when you play Heart of the Alien. And we're going to talk about the more specific elements of the game right now. And we're going to start by talking about the graphics. When you start playing the game, the very first thing you'll notice is that the graphics do feel like out of this world, which is a good thing. The game appeared to utilize the same kind of flat-shaded polygon system, but in reality... It's sprite-based, and I thought this was an interesting decision. And just so everybody's aware, I don't have a way to decompose the images or the graphics in the game to really say firsthand that, yes, these are sprite-based images. But I did find a technical, uh, tech-centric article that talked about the fact that this game in particular was actually sprite-based as opposed to the true polygonal engine of the original. So I thought, assuming that's true... I think that was an interesting decision. There is definitely difficulty in creating a polygonal engine and polygon graphics for this kind of game. I mean, it took Chahi years to complete his original title. Now, granted, he was working on it primarily as a solo developer and doing pretty much everything except for the music of the game. That was all Chahi, whether it was the animation, the graphics, the overall gameplay, the story, Everything was him. So if you have a bigger team, reduces the overall level of effort or at least reduces the overall time that's required to create something because you have more people that are able to work on it. And I will say from a graphics perspective, whether it truly was sprite-based or if there were polygons in there or a hybrid of the two, the graphics were a reasonable approximation of the original. And you wouldn't really tell that there's any significant difference if you review the games side by side. That being said, there were some inconsistencies that showed a lack of care compared to the original. And I talked about this a little bit earlier, but anytime you fall into a pit of spikes, which will happen a lot, by the way, but anytime you fall down into a pit, the camera angle has almost like a an over-top over view or tops-down view of you falling into this pit. And it tries to show you sort of flailing around before you get impaled by the spikes that are at the bottom of these pits. But what ends up happening is as you flail, your body kind of moves in a weird way. It's almost like a ripple in a water, in like in a reflection on water, where 
the top half of your body kind of shifts one way and the bottom half of your body shifts the other way. And your midsection is almost like this, this weird undulating rippling thing. And I don't know, it, it really threw me off, especially the amount of times that that happens. It almost made it look like you were kind of a snake, which I could kind of see the alien design. The head kind of looks snake-like, I guess, if you squint a little bit. But the way that the graphics were constructed and the way that happened and the way that it, that particular animation was handled, just it didn't feel normal. It didn't feel natural. That was something that in the first game, every single animation, and granted, they were crude and they were not necessarily the most advanced graphics um I mean, certainly compared to today, they were not advanced. They were quite primitive. But the artistic style of the first game was phenomenal, and everything felt consistent, everything felt coherent. I cannot say the same thing about Heart of the Alien. There were some scenes where it just felt like things were off just a little bit. Also, your jump, by the way. The jump in Out of This World felt very normal, very natural. It felt very cinematic. The jump here feels like somebody is getting ready to do a uh, box jump or something, but horizontally instead of vertically, and it just feels kind of weird. And you copy that or you, you couple that with the fact that animations, when you do something, whenever you take an action... A lot of the animations will lock you into an action, and this can become very frustrating. The animations themselves, for the most part, other than a couple of, of scenes like we were talking about, the animations feel okay. But because you get locked into an action when an animation starts to play, you can sometimes get stuck. And what I mean by that is if you do something that's not the right move, you'll likely die, especially if you're in a battle with somebody or you're trying to do something and you've hit the wrong button. You're going to be stuck watching that animation play out. The animation is pretty darn smooth, but you really have no way to get out of it. And, and the animations are actually, for some things, pretty long, too. The biggest offender here is the whip animation, where anytime you try to use the whip, it goes into a fairly complex animation showing you whipping your whip and it looks awesome it actually looks really good but it feels like you can't control the experience then there is no smoothness there the animation is smooth but the controls suffer so i don't know it feels like there was some compromises here that didn't necessarily have to happen and i feel like because they were trying to mimic the graphical style they lost sight of how that would affect the controls. And obviously we'll talk about the controls in a couple minutes, but just something to, to mention the, the animations for the most part looked good. The graphics for the most part looked good. They were definitely consistent for the most part with the original title without of this world. So you could kind of see how ending one game and going right into the other one, it was a natural evolution or a natural extension. And you could even play both games back to back if you start by playing out of this world. So it could feel like just a bit of a longer experience if you played the game like that. That being said, there were some inconsistencies here that made the graphics not quite as coherent or cohesive as what we had in the original game. Moving on to the sound and music, I have no complaints here. The music for the title was evocative. It fit in very well with the action, and it felt like it existed within the overall universe of the two titles. There was a consistency for the music 
in the game, whether you played the first one or the second one, whether you played Out of This World or Heart of the Alien, there was a consistency there. And that was largely driven by the fact that the same composer worked on both titles. So the fact that the similar kind of music, if not in some instances, the same music were used between the two titles made it feel like a cohesive experience from an auditory perspective. So I have no complaints about the sound and music. I will say that the music was pretty sparsely used, which worked from a narrative perspective, because what they were trying to do is create in some scenes feelings of tension or dread or or uh, anxiety. And to do that, music can play a role. Both the existence of music can add to those feelings, as well as the absence of music can add to those feelings. So the fact that they took those narrative kind of structure, they used that narrative structure and they combined the music at the right parts and the right kind of music at the parts where they did want some sort of audible experience. It worked. It worked for me. The sound effects were fine too. No real complaints about the sound or the music. And honestly, the music was good. So I actually enjoyed the auditory experience of playing the game. No issue there. Moving on to the narrative and story, we talked about this a little bit. The game picks up right where Out of This World leaves off. So you land from your pterodactyl ride and you recall atrocities that had befallen your village prior to the first game. And it's a little unclear, but it I'm assuming that those flashbacks actually lead directly into what your current predicament or what Buddy's predicament is in the first game. When we first meet Buddy in Out of This World, he's trapped in a cage with you in a jail. I'm assuming that that is the result of these atrocities and captures that happened from your home village, uh, where you most likely were captured, your people were captured, your village was destroyed. And in this title, once you once you recover from those flashbacks and once you go through those flashbacks, you decide that now is the time to make things right. You leave your scientist companion back at your village and you set off to save the villagers and free them from their captors. So the narrative by itself is fine. I have no issue with the narrative or the setup for the overall game. It, I mean, it's fine. <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's just fine. Uh, it, it's not particularly awesome. It's not particularly bad. It's just right there in the middle. So really, from a overall setup standpoint, I don't have a complaint. The execution of the narrative, however, is kind of weird. And let me explain what I mean by that. There are sequences in this game, and when they occur, that feel like they were trying to align with Eric Chahi's vision as a retelling of the first game. But then it was made just different enough so that you knew this was a continuation rather than a retelling. It's It was a very muddled kind of experience it was like at one part you think oh okay this is a continuation of the story and then another part you think well wait is this a continuation or is it a retelling am i experiencing a flashback right now or is it really something that's happening in the quote unquote present part of that or part of the reason why it's a little confusing is the fact that the narrative delivery was the same as Out of This World, which is to say nothing was explicitly defined and a lot of it is left up to individual interpretation. I do want to dive deeper into one thing that happens around, I guess, midpoint of the game. And this is one where 
there's a certain event, and I'm not going to give a spoiler, but there's a certain event that happens in the middle of the game that should have had a significant dramatic impact, but it didn't. It was totally glossed over. It did eventually get revisited when you get to the ending of the game, but that ending was also unceremonious. And by the time you finished the title, by the time you finished the game, this one particular narrative event that occurred just felt odd. It was oddly uh, paced. It didn't really have the kind of focus that you would want to see with this kind of event. And I apologize for being vague. I just don't want to spoil if anybody does, in fact, want to go out and play the game. I don't want to spoil the particular event. But from my perspective, it just it wasn't given the amount of gravitas that you would want for something like this that happened. Moving on from that, because I don't want to spend too much time just talking in vagaries, uh, as far as the main antagonist for the game, for Heart of the Alien, he appears to be the same big bad guy from the end of the first game. So he appears to be, this warden character, appears to be the same bad guy from the end of the first game. But at the end of that title, he's vaporized. So how could he be the main antagonist of this one unless it was, in fact, a retelling or flashback of the original? The only thing is, it it clearly wasn't because the setting has changed and the situations have changed. Or were they? Because there's just enough similar that you might think, well, maybe the first game was itself the result of an untrustworthy narrator, meaning you can't trust what happened in the first game story. Or maybe it's a matter of perspective because you're being a human in the first title and you're being an alien in the second. Maybe the perspective shift just makes things different. So it really is a retelling. Only, no, that can't be. Because it was designed to stand alone without any consideration of a sequel. That original title was meant to be a standalone experience. Only Interplay made the sequel happen. Chahi was happy to leave it as is. But no, you know what? Maybe it was. A, no, you know what? I've got to stop. My brain hurts. I'm going to go. <laughs> I am going to go in circles with this thing. Basically, the narrative was a bit of a mess. It felt like half of the team tried to implement Chahi's narrative while the other half went out to create a new storyline. For me, I am not a fan of this game's narrative. It could have been something. It could have been something positive. It could have been a nice continuation of the original, or if they stuck with Chahi's original vision, it could have been something that would work and give an interesting experience and different perspective on the events that occurred. Uh, but what it is and how it ended up, I am not a fan of of this one, of this narrative at all. Moving on to the playability and controls, the game does control similarly to the first. Then you walk between screens, you jump over obstacles, you run from enemies. In a new action or a new interaction in this game, you're able to use your whip to swing across chasms, and you can shoot bad guys while shielding yourself from blaster fire. So for those who may not have played the first game, just a couple of additional details. General movement is very smooth. And that was the original was very, very smooth. And this one has very smooth animations. And we talked about that a little bit during the graphics section as well. I do want to talk about the whip usage here because conceptually, I think having a whip in a game sounds awesome. And think about the fact that you could take this whip and you might be able to use it as a weapon against your enemies, or you might be able to use it to swing across 
gaps or swing across holes by attaching it to stalactites or some other element in the environment. Or maybe there might be scenes where you have to grab onto something and pull it forward because it's just out of reach and you need to whip it and grab it over to you. So basically, as I'm as I'm thinking about whip usage, I basically think of Indiana Jones. That's that's my first thought when I hear the term whip in a cinematic or a game kind of setting. I always think, oh, well, how would Indiana Jones use it? And that's how I would expect a game to use the whip. The problem with the whip in Heart of the Alien is that you have to be super precise, absolutely almost pixel perfect precise when you're doing some of this swinging. And the whip doesn't really get used all that much outside of swinging across chasms. There's a few areas where you do that swing across a a gap and I guess that's okay, but once again, you need to be so precise there, and there's one section later on where there are some obstacles that you need to avoid, and it's a very timing-driven thing. So if you take the animation of the whip, which locks you into that animation and is a very long animation where you basically can't do anything else, and you couple it with the fact that you need to be highly precise and be standing in the exact right spot in order to attach to the stalactite that's uh, hanging from the ceiling. And you have to time it so that by the time you get through your swing, you're able to bypass this obstacle that would otherwise vaporize you. It becomes a real cumbersome thing to use. So other than swinging across chasms with the whip, it's not really usable for anything else in the game, except for a few specific scenes. There is one spot where you have to use the whip to dislodge a vent, which drops your scientist companion onto a bad guy. That's okay, but once again, the precision required there, I spent, I went through that scene maybe four or five times before I found the exact right spot to stand, and it's not like it was dramatically different. Each time I tried it, it was, it was literally less than an inch of screen difference between when it was successful and when it was not, so I started to think, well, I must be doing the wrong thing. I mean, it seemed pretty obvious that that was the, what you'd have to do is to use the whip to dislodge the vent that your companion was standing on top of or, or kneeling on top of, but it wouldn't work. The game wouldn't work. It wouldn't register a hit on the vent until I got into the exact right spot. Beyond that, there is another spot later in the game where you have to make a box fall on a bad guy's head, which you use by hitting that whip into the box that's hanging and dislodging it from a a chain or a pulley system of some sort. There is only one spot in the game that you can actually use the whip as a weapon. And I have significant issues with this one, and I'll tell you why. When you play a game, you expect there to be a degree of consistency within the game mechanics and the game world. If you give me a whip, I'm going to expect to be able to use that whip as a weapon. When you can't use the whip as a weapon, and I tried, when I first got the whip, I thought, oh, well, this is going to let me fight some bad guys. And I figured, well, maybe there's certain bad guys I won't be able to use it on. But I tried to use it on some vicious bats, and it didn't work. It just didn't work at all. So I figured, okay, well, then maybe the whip isn't usable for that kind of thing. And the entire game you play through, and the whip is not usable as a weapon. But you get to the very final fight, and the main mechanic of that final fight is using the whip as a weapon. So the entire the entire gameplay mechanic that has been used up to this point gets flipped completely upside down in that one sequence of the game. And I'm not saying that that 
that can't happen. And there was a short cutscene that would explain why you would be using the whip like this versus using your traditional blaster kind of thing. So it's not like it was totally untelegraphed, but I gotta say, I do not like a game where, for whatever reason, something that seems obvious, it seems obvious you should be able to use your whip as a weapon. And the fact that you couldn't, eventually you get over that cognitive dissonance and you say, okay, well, I guess the whip can't be used as a weapon. But then it can, and it's just like, why? There there was complete consistency was dropped at that point. And I know it sounds like I'm picking on something that was a relatively minor issue, but I will say that I would have really, I think the game would have been better if the whip could be used as a weapon in every single encounter that you had. If you could use it to whip the uh, weapons out of an enemy's hand, or you could use it to actually kill the uh, like bats or bugs or some other smaller kinds of creatures that would otherwise cause you pain and discomfort, I would have been all about it. I think that would have been fine, but it wasn't. It was just kind of there. And I just felt like it was it was something that was a half-baked idea. I felt like they could have done so much more with it and they just didn't. In addition to the whip, the whip the whip elements, I'll say, the actual whipping, uh, the whip also acts as your blaster. And for anybody who played the first game, the blaster that was in there was very responsive. You could fire very quickly. The blaster, if you held down your blaster button, you could create a shield. And if you held it down for even longer, you would create a super blast, which would be used or could be used to decimate an alien's shield or to knock down certain destructible walls in the game. And it felt really good to use. The blaster in the first game felt nice. The blaster in Heart of the Alien feels really bad to use. There's a reduced rate of fire, so much so that you kind of have to press the button. It's almost like every maybe a half second press or a like every second it'll shoot. It just felt really slow, especially when you consider that all of the enemies that you fight don't have that limitation. They fire as quickly as you could in the first game. So why are we restricted to only firing such with such a much slower rate of speed. You couple that with the fact that if you hold the button a split second too long, you can't shoot. Instead, you create a barrier. It throws off the entire rhythm of combat. And the enemies that you're fighting will keep creating barriers. And if you miss the split second where you have to just press the blaster button and actually shoot them before they have a chance to to put their shield back up, it's going to be a prolonged battle that is absolutely unnecessary. It, it unnaturally pads out the game a little bit. It definitely makes the rhythm of combat feel off. And it was a significant downgrade from the first game's blaster play. Also, when we talked about this a little bit before, but to, it warrants mentioning one more time, I thought climbing ledges could have been a worthwhile addition, but considering it was barely used in most of the game, it just felt like a simple, unnecessary add-on. Once again, another example of something that was, to a degree, just half-baked in comparison to what I would have wanted. So overall, how does it feel to play the game today? As you might imagine, I have some thoughts. On one hand, for the most part, the game looks and sounds like out of this world, which is a good thing. I adored the first game's overall style. I really enjoyed the music. I think it it truly is a classic. So the fact that this game is a reasonable kind of facsimile 
of that first game, at least from a graphical and sound perspective, for the most part, that's a good thing. But I truly feel like Heart of the Alien has none of the heart of Out of This World. The storyline is muddled and doesn't make a ton of sense, especially the ending and some of the ways it seems to flip-flop back and forth between it being a retelling of the original versus a brand new story. It just did not work for me at all. The controls are not great. Movement around the game world requires an insane amount of precision. You need to be exactly on certain pixels for your whip to attach to a stalactite to cross a chasm. If not, it just looks like you're randomly whipping the air for no reason. Blasters feel awful. They feel totally different to play. Even if I divorce myself from the memories of the first game, it just doesn't feel responsive. The animations are smooth, but because of how they were designed, if you take an action, you're going to be locked into that given path for a period of time, which makes the overall control feel awkward and disjointed. And the difficulty. Oh my God, the difficulty. It was obscene. Every screen, I'll say almost, almost every screen is designed not to challenge you, but to break you. There is no balance here. Everything feels like an intentional punishment. It felt like we must have pissed somebody off to have this much hate thrown at us. You'll encounter a ravaging beast, bottomless pits, dripping acid, noxious plants, and killer bats in the first five screens of the game, and it only gets worse from there. Couple that difficulty with the required pixel-perfect precision, and it is a recipe for disaster. The other thing, and this was really frustrating, by the way, the game will randomly think that a pixel of your hand protruding from behind a barrier will open yourself up to utter death from an enemy's blaster fire. So if you just inch the littlest bit beyond your barrier and the enemy is firing, because remember, the enemy can fire at least twice as fast, if not more so, than you. The enemy can fire blaster shots continuously. You cannot. If you inch too far up and it nicks your hand, you are dead. And then finally, you want to use the whip as a weapon, but you can't. The game won't let you until you finally can right at the end of the game. And I just got to say, why? Bottom line, I did not enjoy this game. And I am so confused as to what most critics of the day were thinking when they claimed this game was better than Out of This World, which from my perspective is a true classic. Heart of the Alien feels bad to play. It is more frustrating than fun, and it has none of the narrative nuance or gameplay balance of the original. Even if I consider it as a standalone experience, I cannot recommend anyone play this game. It is just not fun. And I'm not I'm not one of those guys that doesn't like a difficult game. I enjoy difficult games. This is just not fun. I 100% agree with Eric Chahi. This is a game that shouldn't have been made and should not be considered a sequel to Out of This World. To put it another way, the only reason I decided to make a whole episode on Heart of the Alien was to warn others not to play it. This was not on my original episode schedule, but once I experienced it, I felt compelled to talk about it. For those and numerous other reasons, I believe Heart of the Alien should remain a footnote in gaming history. It happened, sure, but it shouldn't have. 
This is a prime example of how difficult it is to capture lightning in a bottle twice, especially when the original creator of that lightning can't lend their own personal, unique touch to the experience. Play this one at your own risk. For me, though, I have no intention to revisit the game ever again. I'm glad I played it, if only because I'd always wonder how the out-of-this-world story would continue. Now that I've experienced it, though, I'd rather forget it ever happened. Go back and play the original if you want a worthwhile experience. This game just is not worth a playthrough. That was our episode on Heart of the Alien. I hope you all enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed creating it. If you'd like to provide some feedback, comments, suggestions for future episodes, I'd love to hear from you, and there are a couple ways you can reach out to me. I do have an email address, which is classicgamingtoday at gmail.com. I also have a Twitter account with the handle at ClassicGamingT. So if you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing or let me know what you're thinking about for future episodes or what you thought of Heart of the Alien. Maybe you loved it. Who knows? If so, let me know. Let me know what you liked about it because, boy, this one was hard for me. But in any event, let me know what you think. I am definitely interested in having the discussion. Before we call it for the week, the next episode I do want to mention is focused on Streets of Rage 2. So feel free to write in if you have any particularly fond memories of that title. I'm interested in hearing what you all think. At the same time, I recognize that you're listening to this podcast on any number of podcast services or aggregation engines because we live pretty much anywhere the podcasts live, and it would be great if you could leave us a review. I am definitely interested in getting some feedback here. It's not about bolstering star counts, and it's not about trying to harvest a bunch of five-star reviews, though if that happens, awesome, that means we're doing something right. But I am legitimately interested in making sure this is the best possible podcast it can be. And the only way to do that is to make sure that we're hitting the mark and that we're getting the right content that you all want to listen to. So if you feel so inclined, please leave a review or just reach out and let me know how I'm doing. I am definitely interested in your thoughts. We are still growing. We are continuing to develop the community. This is one of those things that'll be a never-ending journey because it's just always going to be a focus. I always want to make sure we're creating the best possible content. And I hope you are all enjoying it thus far. We'll be back in around a week with our next episode focused on Streets of Rage 2. Until then, remember, sometimes the games of the past are just as good, if not better, than the games of today. Goodbye, everyone. Goodbye.